You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Theft and vandalism are not uncommon in our world, though theft of public property is a bit more rare. That was the charge two men in France found themselves facing in 2018. They had removed several of a particular item from a public park. The targets were benches. Not the benches themselves, but the armrests that had been recently added to the center of the benches. They didn't need armrests at home, they weren't going to sell the metal for scrap, so why remove them? So people experiencing homelessness could sleep on the benches again. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Interesting design changes have been popping up in major cities over the past few decades. It's all around us, and we probably don't even notice. Benches made for leaning rather than sitting. Tall bumps on the pavement under overhangs. Dog-sized boulders under overpasses. Proponents say this type of urban design is necessary to help maintain order, ensure safety, and curb unwanted behavior like loitering and skateboarding. There are more examples than I could possibly hope to list today. If you're in the UK, you may have seen Camden benches, named for the Camden Borough of London that commissioned them. They look like pieces of functional modern art, swoopy and sloping in places, angular in others. The design is less pro-form than it is anti-function. Anti-skateboarding because the lack of straight edges means you can't grind on it anti-drug dealing for its lack of crevices to stash things, anti-theft because the only place to put your bag is in the recess behind your legs, anti-graffiti because its special coating repels paint, and, germane to today's topic, anti-sleeping. That won't affect your workaday world unless you're experiencing homelessness. In that case, this defensive architecture, more aptly known as hostile architecture, makes a bad situation worse. FYI, today's topic was voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, who will get an ad-free version of this episode a little early. So some of you know that going into this, it's going to be a little bit of a bummer, but I promise that it ends with hope and positivity. Hostile architecture goes way beyond benches you can't skate or sleep on, and it's seemingly everywhere. New York's long-famed Strand Bookstore installed sprinklers under their iconic awning to spray people seeking shelter under it, like an evil capitalist produce mister. In early 2018, a homeless camp of men, women, and children was cleared out by police action, only to be replaced by a set of 18 bicycle racks in an area where nobody really rides bikes. A 7-Eleven store in Portland made headlines when it blared a high-pitched sound similar to an alarm outside the store. In Boston, 
the transit authority installed armrests on the benches at tea stops, claiming it was for the benefit of the elderly and disabled. Defensive architecture is also called crime prevention through environmental design. Fancy the phrase? That's handy because that's the URL of a website all about it. Crime prevention through environmental design is a multidisciplinary approach of crime prevention that uses urban and architectural design and management of built and natural environments. CPTED strategies aim to reduce victimization, deter offender decisions that precede criminal acts, and build a sense of community among the inhabitants so they can gain territorial control of areas, reduce crime, and minimize fear of crime. That is certainly one point of view. For balance, let's turn to architectural historian and clinical associate professor at New York University, John Ritter. We're building barriers and walls around apartment buildings and public spaces to keep out the diversity of people and uses that comprise urban life. What is hostile to some is defensive to others. California is particularly nasty in the game of hostile architecture, and it's an offense felt by the people who experience homelessness all across the state. Under cover of darkness, literally, San Francisco took all of the benches out of the Civic Central Plaza in the 1990s and the United Nations Plaza in 2001. While it does discourage people experiencing homelessness from sleeping in the plaza, it also means that the people who go there during the day have nowhere to sit. The city by the bay also sees widespread use of urine-proof paint on buildings and structures to deter public urination. So if you're a drunk frat boy kicked out of the bar at last call, or a person sleeping rough and you pee on one of those buildings, the special paint makes it splash back on your legs and feet. The state capital of Sacramento faced its own troubles with defensive architecture, and many believe that these design choices affect all members of the public, not just the homeless. Our downtown has incorporated hostile designs and practices, such as removing benches outside the library. Erecting fencing to keep people out of alcoves, turning off all the water faucets, turning on sprinklers at odd hours in parks—just some examples—all to discourage homeless people and loitering, says Paula Lamazzi, the director of Sacramento's street paper, Homeward Street Journal. What they have done affects everyone, making downtown uncomfortable for everyone, including shoppers. Philadelphia's Love Park, in the heart of the city of brotherly love, underwent a rather long and rather expensive $26 million renovation, unveiled in 2018, claiming to be designed as more accessible and inclusive. The new benches installed in the beloved attraction are curved and slotted; metal bars divide them into sections. While there has been public outcry against this apparent redesign to keep Homeless people out of the public eye, the city remains steadfast in its support for what it believes is actually a more inclusive design. In an interview, a city spokesperson maintained that the whole area was now more open and inviting because barrier walls had been removed. And anyway, that's the same bench design that's used in the other city parks. Yeah, but just because there's more of it doesn't make it okay. She then pointed out that the bigger issue should be alleviating homelessness. And bragged about the city's welcoming attitude, instead of saying anything about how the housing remediation situation might be going. In case there's a little Ebenezer Scrooge voice in your head 
saying that homeless people should just sleep in shelters? People experiencing homelessness often feel safer out in the open at night than in a shelter, and daytime services are not always accessible, so neither do they have any place to go during the long days. The question cities have to answer is, who is the public space for? Who counts as the public? Who are we welcoming and who are we excluding? When the city adds spikes to the pavement of an already hard and uncomfortable sidewalk to sleep on, it says to the person who needs it, you are not welcome here. It makes the message crystal clear. You don't need words on a sign, only metal and concrete. According to Dr. Ainsley Murray, senior lecturer in architecture at the University of New South Wales Built Environment, even if the goal of installing hostile architecture in public space is to control crime or antisocial behavior, the impacts are extensive and often outweigh the benefits. And for those of you curious, no, I will not be attempting an Australian accent right now. Take, for example, the benches that you can't quite sit on. Sure, people can't sleep on them or make permanent homes on them, but neither can the elderly, frail people, people with disability, pregnant women, or children actually sit down. The fallout is much broader than just limiting the group of people that may have initially challenged the space in the beginning, and so it does become a more significant equity issue. Hostile architecture also deflects responsibility from dealing with the root cause of social and economic issues, such as homelessness. But rest assured, there have been many instances of the public organizing against this type of design. When anti-homeless spikes were installed in Montreal, the outcry was so loud that the city removed them almost instantly, reopening that sidewalk space to whoever may need it. Have you seen hostile architecture appear or disappear where you live? Hop on the social media and tell your fellow brainiacs all about it. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts. Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. We also have r slash Your Brain on Facts subreddit and the Facebook group, both of which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com slash social. You can also go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch to be ported right over to the Tee Public page, where I have put up no less than two new designs this week, and that means that there are two designs on sale. And anyway, Tee Public does sales so often. Whenever you hear this, you've got a 50-50 shot. Saving money is almost as fulfilling as getting reviews for the book and podcast. Sadly, still no more new reviews for the book, but there are two new reviews from over on Podchaser, which is like the IMDb of podcasts and a great place to leave reviews if your podcast app doesn't have that function. Another really great show, the Strange Animals podcast, left a review saying, This podcast is chock full of fascinating trivia, like the best parts of Rocky Road ice cream. Moxie's voice is smooth and expressive, and she always sounds like she's having as much fun sharing the information as I have when listening. Even when she covers a topic I'm pretty familiar with, she always manages to surprise me. Thanks, Kate, and I hope all of my listeners thank you as well by checking out the Strange Animals podcast. We also have a review from Tatiana DZ91. Ten stars! This is the podcast that started it all for me. I even sought this site out specifically for the purpose of expressing my genuine, undying, and unabating, way-too-serious love for this podcast. I also love that they included an interabong, which is a question mark and exclamation point at the same time during those uh, adjectives. 
Total transparency here, this is the only podcast I stream. The only others I even heard are from the usual suspects that come in on your FM radio channel. I'll omit the three-letter name. This is Moxie's review, and I love her mind. Moxie has made me feel like I'm allowed to be myself, not to have to dumb down or whatever. I swear I'm not this pretentious. Swear. Funny and smart go hand in hand, and they do quite beautifully on this show. Listen, or prepare to die. Yay! Thank you for that enthusiastic review, Tatiana DZ91, and for the Interabong, and just letting me say, Interabong. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. One man in particular has decided not to be silent when he sees hostile architecture. Well, what he does is literally silent, and it's probably done surreptitiously. That man is UK artist Stuart Semple. Semple has a low tolerance for selfish BS, which we'll come back to in a minute. Hostile design is design that intends to restrict freedom or somehow control a human being, be that homeless person, skater, or everyday humans congregating to enjoy themselves, Semple told the magazine Hyperallergenic. The danger of hostile design is that it's so insidious, it's so quiet, so camouflaged, that unless you know what it is, you accept it. And that blind acceptance makes things grow and spread. Moved to action by the installation of unsightly bars on benches in his hometown, Semple launched a series of stickers. Okay, when you say it out loud, it is a little anticlimactic, but it's about sending a message. The design crime stickers are for anyone who feels the spirit move them to tag hostile architecture to make it more obvious to people who might not otherwise think about it. You can see lots of examples on social media with the tag Hostile Design, which is also the website, hostildesign.org. Oh, he's capitalizing it, selling the stickers? 
I mean only kind of. He asks for 50p to cover the printing, or, if you can spare it, a pound to pay for your set and someone else's. Thanks to a petition sparked by Semple's photos and signed by nearly 20,000 people, the local borough council announced it would be removing the dividers from the public benches. Semple cites this victory as a great example of what can happen when the community comes together and gets behind something. While he's sure to point out on the website that he doesn't condone vandalism, Semple encourages people to tag hostile designs to start discussions among urban activists and planners, in turn leading to more inclusive and welcoming public space design. And Semple's aversion to selfishness? Semple is probably best known for the pigments he's created, like the pinkest pink. Semple created it in response to another artist, Anish Kapoor, who bought the exclusive rights to the blackest black, Vanta Black, which absorbs 99.96% of light. Anish Kapoor has exclusive right to use Vanta Black, and no one else. Semple, politely put, disagreed with this arrangement. So he created the pinkest pink in protest, allowing it to be used by everyone in the world, except Anish Kapoor. When you buy it, you have to agree that you are not Anish Kapoor, you are in no way affiliated with Anish Kapoor, you are not purchasing this item on behalf of Anish Kapoor or an associate of Anish Kapoor. Kapoor, however, did get a hold of some of the pinkest pink, dipped his middle finger in it, and posted it on Instagram to mock Semple. You stay classy, Anish. If you'd like something with a bit more flower power, you can swap your stickers for seeds and join the guerrilla gardening movement. It can be as simple as scattering seeds on some unused land or adding wildflowers to a tree pit. Some guerrilla gardeners even paint walls with a slurry of moss and buttermilk, which grows into a kind of living, breathing graffiti. Others descend on old magazine bins and fill them up with flowers. A project becomes guerrilla as soon as it occupies land, typically publicly owned, that the gardener doesn't have legal right to be planting on. The movement is so wide-ranging, it actually has its own day, the 1st of May every year, which is International Sunflower Guerrilla Gardening Day. I'm sorry I didn't learn about it in time to tell you, I just learned about it this week, but there's always next year. Hey Google, set a reminder for next April 30th. Tomorrow is International Sunflower Guerrilla Gardening Day. Okay, do you want to save this? Yes, please. Okay, reminder saved. I always use my manners when talking to the machines. That way, when they take over, they'll think nicely of me. The genesis of the modern movement is generally said to have begun in the Bowery in the Lower East Side of New York City, when a woman named Liz Christie, fed up with the lack of green space in her neighborhood, began planting window boxes and lobbing seed grenades, biodegradable balloons filled with tomato seed and fertilizer, into vacant lots and other unused spaces. One day, in 1973, she and some like-minded folks got the city to agree to allow them to plant on a large, dirty, abandoned lot, a project that would come to be the first of its kind Bowery Houston Farm and Garden. While breathing life and color into drab, dirty urban landscapes is not without its merit, there's more to guerrilla gardening than flowers. The movement also seeks to terraform food deserts. If you don't know what a food desert is, 
you're probably among the more fortunate 73.5% of the American population who don't live in one. A food desert is an area in which people have limited access to healthy food. This is commonly seen in socioeconomically disadvantaged urban neighborhoods that tend not to have grocery stores. What produce you can get in the markets is sparse and of poorer quality than what you get in the burbs. Many food desert dwellers also rely on public transportation, so they face a long and inconvenient travel time to reach a grocery store, during which time they're severely limited in how much food they can carry, assuming the bus even goes to any good stores. COVID lockdown made the situation all the worse. Food deserts can also coexist with food swamps, where there is technically plenty of food, but healthy it is not. So think about areas that have just convenience stores and fast food as the only option. California Food Policy Advocates, a nonprofit devoted to the issue, estimates that 42% of low-income people in LA lack regular access to fresh, healthy food, a disturbingly high majority of them being children. And it is in the food desert of South Los Angeles that resident and fashion designer Ron Finley made headlines in 2013 when he decided to do something about that. Finley began planting vegetables near a sidewalk and street outside of his house. Before long, the neglected dirt bore sprouts, then shoots, then fruit. As the months passed, neighbors and passers-by began noticing his urban gardening, fragrant and overflowing with flowers and vegetables. Sometimes, though, the neighbors would come by and help themselves. In a matter of months, Finley had sparked a revolution and began to spread the gospel of the garden to his neighbors, visitors, and more importantly, the kids. Gardening is the most therapeutic and defiant act you can do. There are so many metaphors in that garden. We're cultivating ourselves. We're learning how to take care of things. We're learning that nothing is instantaneous. We need to teach our kids that gardening is gangster. Finley had a gangster moment not long after he planted his garden when the city issued him a citation for gardening without a permit, claiming that there were laws banning anything but trees and lawn from being planted in the area. Finley fought back when he found that the city owned 26 square miles of vacant lot space, enough area to plant one billion with a B tomato plants just sitting there, not producing anything and encouraging dumping and neglect. After hearing his argument, the city is now in the process of changing the old laws and allowing citizens to grow fruits and vegetables near sidewalks. Side note, not that they need any promotion from my little show, but 99% Invisible did a great episode on why there is little to no shade in LA. You should definitely check that out. Guerrilla gardening spread, or cropped up, no pun intended, in other major cities, and those cities have taken notice. Baltimore, for example, has an Adopt-A-Lot program, which auctions off abandoned land to potential gardeners. In San Francisco, there's now a generous tax break for property owners who are willing to convert unused plots into farms. Guerrilla gardening isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, either. Take Hong Kong, for example, where in the 1990s, the city produced about 30% of its own fruits and vegetables. But today, because of the availability of imported food, that percentage has dropped to less than 3%. The Hong Kong government no longer sees a need for urban gardens or vast expanses of greenery, 
And they've even run TV PSAs, warning citizens that it's illegal to sow seeds in undesignated areas. If nevertheless you persisted in your growing, the city might well show up and rip out all your plants. But the desire to have healthy food and a healthier city is deeply rooted in the hearts of some who turn to rooftop gardening. You can grow everything from peppers to mangoes in containers, and the city either generally doesn't notice or doesn't care. And if this segment has gotten your green thumb itching, please bear in mind two things. One, nothing on this podcast constitutes legal advice or opinion. And two, running around town doing your best Johnny Appleseed cosplay and planting seeds on land that doesn't belong to you could be outright illegal. That's why many guerrilla gardeners do their planting under cover of night. And that being said, you don't have to break any laws to participate in other forms of guerrilla gardening. Take a walk around your neighborhood and note any empty patches of dirt. Maybe a tree pit needs a little help, or a patch of grass could use some flowers. Try contacting your municipal authority to find out if there are already empty plots of land that could use sprucing up. If the unused land is on private property, try asking the owner if you can add some green life. Hey, you don't ask, you don't get. And they might like the idea of the property being beautified at no cost to them. But my favorite example of guerrilla gardening, or at least something in that spirit, was largely unintentional. Just junk. Just continual junk. Mattresses, tables, a lot of graffiti, a lot of urination and drug use kind of thing, which fit in nicely with the leitmotif of the potholes. Back in 2009, Stevenson was practically on a first-name basis with the City Public Works Department. Even when the city would come to clean up the junk, it was clear they were just bailing the ocean because more trash would appear, often within the day. Then Stevenson had a different idea after his wife came home from the hardware store with a little cement statue of Buddha. He glued the statue to a rock in the median so that no one would steal it, or at the very least they'd have to put some effort into it. Maybe if there was something nice in the median, he reasoned, people wouldn't leave so many soiled mattresses and delaminated flat-pack tables with broken legs. Worst-case scenario, the city would remove it during a trash pickup, and he'd have to buy another statue. But it worked. The rate at which garbage accumulated near what would come to be called the Buddha of Oakland slowed right down, eventually basically stopping. Then, about a year later, other things began to appear on the median. Where there had been fast food trash, there were flowers. Where there had been torn garbage bags, there were plates of fruit. And eventually, where there had been decay and despair, there were people praying. Oakland has a sizable Vietnamese population, and that little hardware store statue had become the focal point of an ad hoc shrine. The Buddha statue and the area around him were adopted by the local Vietnamese immigrant community, particularly a woman named Vina Vo, who as a child would walk to the local temple with her grandmother each morning to pray and recite Buddhist mantras. Then the war happened, what we call the Vietnam War, and they rightly call the American War. When South Vietnam surrendered to North Vietnam in 1975, many of the houses in Vo's village were burned, including hers and the temple. In 1982, Vo, her husband, and brother left Vietnam on a small boat with three dozen other people, 
eventually finding her way to Oakland. In 2010, a community member at the Vietnamese church told Vo about a Buddha that had been placed on a corner just blocks from her house. He suggested maybe she could take care of the statue in its little island. And take care of it, she did. With the help of friends and family, they made the median into a proper shrine. They built a wooden structure to protect the Buddha and put up two flags, one American and one Buddhist. A little tape recorder plays chants while smoke from incense curls up into the air. The statue itself was painted and given brown hair and red and gold robes. Shrines and temples in Vietnam serve as community meeting places, and this one is no exception. Not everyone in the area is completely thrilled with it, though. Many people who pray at the shrine first thing in the morning also tap wooden sticks as they chant. Neighbors call it the Buddhist alarm clock. But all the same, they appreciate the shrine. After all, a few loud prayers are a small price to pay to transform a dumping site in an intersection into a beautiful, maintained, enriching asset for the community. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to those two fellows in France. According to one of the men, we cannot consider removing the armrests as helping out homeless people because letting them sleep on a bench is not really helping. The two men were convicted of stealing public property, but walked free after convincing the judge their behavior was aimed at highlighting a social problem. The same man found it ironic to be convicted of stealing from the public when the authorities used taxpayer money to restrict some people's access to the public benches. So who really stole the public property, he asked. I think not us. Thanks to my guest quote readers on today's episode. Jason from Memester of the Week. Dustin from Sandman Stories Presents. Or Najee Kami Jace Walker, and I am from the Weekly Cooldown Podcast. This is Chris Green, co-host of This Week Today on the Podfix Network. Remember, you can always find the source links and the full script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.